1: Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. What is going on with yourself today on the What Difference does a podcast?
2: I'm feeling euphoric today, Dave. How about you?
1: Euphoric. I like that word. You know who else likes that word? Peter Jesperson. He's got a book out, right? He does. Peter Jesperson has had a long career in the music
2: business, and he has written a book. And the book is called Euphoric Recall. And the subtitle, another long one, a half century as a music fan, producer, DJ, record executive, and tastemaker.
1: He's associated with Twin Tone Records, which was the label of the replacements. So he's got a few replacement stories. And I am obsessed with the replacements. I want to hear everything. So I feel like I, I kind of ambushed the interview.
2: I was happy to let you ask him all your questions. I was really fascinated in his entire story, his entire career arc. Uh, And don't forget, I know you're obsessed with the replacements, but also he uh, kind of moved into REM territory also, which I thought would uh, interest you.
1: Yeah, that interests me as well. You're okay
2: with them? You feel you kind of like them?
1: Yeah, 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 they're both. I mean, they're together. REM, you know, in, in my record collection, REM replacements, they're right next to each other. Clearly. R.E.M. comes first. R.E.M. comes first. Peter's got a unique way of uh, alphabetizing his records, which we will get into. Would you put R.E.M. at the front of the R's or would you put them at R.E.?
2: That is a very interesting question. (laughs) I think I would probably put them as
1: R.E. Okay. There's no right or wrong answer.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you I want know. personal you
1: want preference. Put, you want to put the REM and the Replacements together. I did because I felt they would be friends and you know, they were kind of friends. We'll hear some stories in this uh, upcoming episode about REM and the Replacements and if they did exactly get along or if it was just a one man's grudge against a whole band, which we'll get into. <laughs> we're going to have a lot of fun talking to Peter. You could also have a lot of fun on YouTube with us. How could someone do that?
2: You can find us at What Difference Does It Make Podcast on YouTube and on other social media at WDDIM Podcast.
1: Yeah, we're getting a lot of subscribers now on YouTube. We're almost at 1,000, so keep subscribing because once you hit 1,000, it's like a magic number there. like Bells and whistles go off. It's big celebrations. There's applause,
2: applause that comes from every every time we open
1: YouTube, we'll get some applause. Yes, Lady Gaga type uh, applause. (laughs) We're going to get into our talk. Peter Jesperson's in our virtual studio. He's waiting for us. Why don't we get in there right now? This is Peter Jesperson. He wrote a book called Euphoric Recall. And Holly starts it off right away with Replacements Talk on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Hello? Oh. Hello, Peter Jesperson. Thank you.
2: I have to say, I think I was at the Roxy show in 86,
0: maybe? Uh, the Roxy was, I think, late 85 after Tim came out. We did two nights there, actually.
2: Okay. I I was a fan. I was, I did not realize that Tommy was so young. I I didn't at the time. I didn't realize it. I can't believe he was only 13. Right. Well, I mean, not in 85.
0: (laughs) <laughs> right, right. Uh, by that time 85 he would have been He was a year younger. And he was born in uh, 66, so Yeah,
1: same age. Yeah,
0: we're the so, same age.
2: Yeah, but I didn't realize at the time, you know, went the, at the start of the band how young he was and that you really were I mean, the way it's portrayed, you it seemed like you were raising all of them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, there was, I mean, there was a lot of babysitting that went on, that's for sure.
1: Well, that is right. part of the manager job, But and you had yeah. no idea what you were getting into, right? I mean, Yeah, you, I, I you mean, I
0: didn't, and, and, you know, I think I never really vied for the management position. It just fell into my lap, and there was really nobody else around to take care of it, and there were a lot of, as we say, doubting Thomases, a lot of people who are like, ooh, you know, like a 13-year-old bass player, Peter, this is really going to go far, and You know, I had some kind of uh, epiphany when I heard their music and and first saw them play. So, uh, I mean, I had a lot of people giving me shit about it, and I just never, I just thought, you guys aren't listening. And before they even had a record out, I remember wagging my finger at somebody saying, someday people are going to be writing books about these guys. (laughs) And I don't think at the time I really genuinely believed it, but in the back of my head, I thought it was a real possibility. So... That's, it just had a connection with me somehow.
1: And that book was Trouble Boys, which speaks highly of you. What led to you deciding, like, it's time to tell my story?
0: Well, the, the name of the book is Euphoric Recall. There, there were times where I thought about, I love to write, and I've written all through the years for one reason or another, writing, um, you know, record label content and bios for bands. And I did record reviews and some features I wrote for Crawdaddy magazine you know in the early 2000s I don't know if you know he Paul Williams the original founder uh, took it back to being a stapled together uh, fanzine and uh, did I don't know a couple years worth of issues there and I wrote for him I became friends with him and he had been a great hero of mine back in the day from not only Crawdaddy magazine but especially he wrote these liner notes for the second Procol Harum album which as a 14 year old it was the (laughs) hippest thing I'd ever read I memorized them and so that was a big deal to get to know him so anyway I've always liked to write and then you know, I've just done a lot of different things in music. And so there's uh, over the years, I've always had people saying, Oh man, you got to write a book someday. And I thought, yeah, you and 10 other people would be interested. And I kind of brushed it off. And then, you know, at a certain point I started thinking, you know, I got a kid now he's 21 now but at the time when I first started thinking about it I thought I'm going to try to put some of this stuff down even if it becomes nothing more than a glorified journal for my boy and then you know, I've been working with a record label out here in LA for 17 years called New West Records and I left there in 2016 and two years later I was doing freelance and I was loving it, I loved the freedom and the elbow room (laughs) New West had been a great place to work but it was relentless, I mean it was like uh, we were putting out a lot of records maybe more than we really had the capacity to do a good job with. And I say that with all due respect to the label. I mean, they were great people. They are great people. But uh, two years after I left, I got an offer to, uh, from a publisher who said, are you interested in writing a memoir? We'd really like to talk to you about it if you are. And I was just like, wow, somebody really makes it you know, an actual a, a formal offer. It just scared the daylights out of me. <laughs> and uh, I, I spent several months um, lurching from yes, I can do this to who am I kidding? I can't write a book. And I also had a lot of projects on my desk at the time. I didn't want to start writing a book when I couldn't focus entirely on it. I wanted the book to be my job and I wanted to sit down at nine in the morning and write for eight hours. And and I didn't want to have to have a bunch of other stuff distracting me. So it took me a little bit to clear my desk. And once I did, I dove in head first and just wrote my brains out. And then I I was foolish enough, uh, being a first-time long form writer to not pay attention to the word count that I had contracted for. And when I turned in the book a year ago, right about now, the publisher kind of just laughed and said, I'm glad you have so much to say, but you've written more than twice as much as the contract was for, and you're going to have to knock it in half. And it was like, Oh my God. So I would written 163,000 words and they, they wanted, uh, they wanted 75,000 words. I knocked it down to about a hundred thousand. And then between me and the editor, we got it down to around 87,000. That's about what the book is, I think. in it's final form.
1: So when the box set comes out, you know, in a couple years, you know, after this is a huge success, the 10th anniversary, we'll have like the expanded version of this the book. director's cut. Yes. Yes.
0: All right the Snyder yeah. cat. <laughs> but I enjoyed the process. And so I, I may do something else after this. I don't know. It's hard to say. See how, see if anybody cares about this one. When you finish something like this, you, you can only see the flaws and the things you wish you'd done better. I'm pretty pleased with how it came out. I do genuinely feel it's too short, though. I think that the editor went too far in trimming it down. But as he said, you know, it was really is a very practical. People don't want long books, the general public. And then, of course, you have to take into account that a bigger book costs more to manufacture. So, you know, there were practical reasons to try to keep it at a certain word count. You want
1: the 3-minute pop song, right? I mean, well, come on.
0: Right, that's what I grew up on. 2 minutes and 30 seconds maybe.
1: Right, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect.
2: Have you thought about who's going to play you in the
0: movie? Uh, n- nope. There was a there was a little t- period where they're uh, talking about a replacement's movie and they were they were actually casting and that was a pretty strange situation. I'll tell you. They sent me pictures of people who they were talking to and it really was incomprehensible to me but luckily it didn't get too far I don't know how many rock movies of that kind are really turn out good you know
1: we're familiar with the New York scene and the LA scene we grew up in LA uh, I don't know for Holly I mean we we didn't know Minneapolis at all I mean I knew You know, we knew Twin Tone. Of course, we knew the replacements and Soul Asylum. Uh, Right. We heard a little bit of the suburbs, a little bit of that. uh, But I didn't know clubs or record stores or anything. So this was like a great entry point to like learn a lot about what was going on in that city, which – Apparently, you were the mayor.
0: Minneapolis-St. Paul has always been a great arts community of all kinds, you know, dance and fine art and modern art and theater. I, I grew up working in a place called Guthrie Theater, which had an immense impact on me as a kid before I ever started really working there. It's a, I mean, the, the architecture of the building alone was stunning. So yeah, it's, anyway, Minneapolis has been a great arts town and music has always been just a big deal. And I think that, you know, when I really started traveling, I learned to appreciate Minneapolis more because I feel like Minneapolis really embraced arts of all kinds. And there wasn't really like, you know, I came up and started working in a record store a few years Prior to the punk rock boom, but it really became very myopic there for a while. You know, I love the Clash, but on their first album, they sang in the song "White Riot." You know, no more Elvis, Beatles, or the Rolling Stones in 1977. And I remember going, "I love you guys, but I don't really understand that. Why would you want no more Elvis, Beatles, or the Rolling Stones? I mean, you know, the Clash are are not even in that league, for God's sakes. You know, and how dare you, kind of thing. To me, Minneapolis really embraced it all, and that's what our record store did. We loved all kinds of music. We, you know, people about disco we love lots of disco music I have tons of disco records probably more 45s than LPS I'll admit but we love all kinds of music classical jazz, blues folk whatever you know I mean music is magic I think there's some something magic about it and uh, the indefinable attraction that so many of us have to it is part of what keeps you interested right
2: and all personal tastes to be respected
0: yeah exactly
1: okay but that said uh, a couple of the replacements were not big beatles fans were they
0: or (laughs) you know i think they i think they all they all were but i think that especially westerberg was the one who was very vocal about like you know hey they're just a rock band peter you know they aren't like gods or whatever and i was like well i don't agree with that. I think they are gods. So I think that deep down, Paul really loved the Beatles, but kind of downplayed it, you know, when he was around me to a large extent. <laughs> and and he was probably, you know, there are the people who, you know, the ongoing debate, Beatles or Stones, you know, he was probably more of a Stones guy. And he also said, you know, the Beatles were a great band, but the Stones were a rock and roll band. And he was claiming that the Beatles really weren't the rock and roll band that the Stones were. And I thought, well, that's BS. I don't know if you guys read the tune in book, the Mark Lewison Big book, but I, I thought one of the great factoids that you learned in there was in when he's wrapping up in 1962, you know, December of 62, he's kind of given everybody the lay of the land. And he says at that time, the Rolling Stones had just brought Bill Wyman into the band, solidifying the first classic lineup of the Stones. And they figure at that time, in December of 62, the Stones had done about 30 gigs. At that same time, the Beatles had done 973 or something. So it's like, come on. I mean... <laughs> you know, they were the best rock and roll band. I mean, they were the most well-oiled rock and roll band probably in the world at that time.
1: I've also heard how you organize your albums Can you share that with us? Well,
0: that's, you know, that's a funny thing because it sounds like, you know, hyperbole or so. Like I really remember when I started to have a record collection that I just naturally had Beatle records here and then the alphabet followed that. And I remember, I vividly remember going over to a friend of mine's house in 1964, 65 and seeing he had the Beatle records filed in the B's. And I remember it just giving me this like, ah, that's not right. (laughs) You know, it really just always seemed like there's the Beatles and then there's everything else. And that's still the way I think about it. They were superior in, in all regards, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Okay, and is it chronological or alphabetical for the Beatles? How do you? How oh, the do you, Beatles
0: is chronological.
1: Okay, and by U.S. and British? How do you? How does this? Down? I'm. I have, this is important. Uh,
0: well, I guess I actually have the the Beatles <laughs> section. I've got more Beatles records than anything else. I mean, I have lots of you know underground records too. So, be yeah, it's it's the you know the Parlophone records first, and then okay. the Capitol records. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, can we go back to the record store for a minute? Where did the name come from? Or Folk Joke Opus. There, you
0: got it. You said it perfectly. It's actually, or is one word. Folk Joke Opus is a combination of three words. Or was a solo album by Alexander Spence, Skip Spence, who was originally the drummer of Jefferson Airplane on the first album. And then he formed a group called Moby Grape and was one of the writers, singers, guitarists. And he made a solo album called Or in 1968. It was the first record I ever knew of that was one guy playing all the instruments. And it was on Columbia, and it was a very weird record, very, very weird record. And then Folk Joe Opus was an album by a British kind of folk rock singer named Roy Harper. He was very eccentric and just followed his own path completely and was just a fascinating human being. About the only real mainstream connection that he would have was he was close friends with Jimmy Page and there's a song on the third Led Zeppelin album, closes the album called Hats Off to Harper and that's about Roy Harper. But uh, anyway, we used uh, Roy Harper's face from the Folk Joke Opus album on the sign of our record store and I didn't choose the name. i had been shopping at the store for two years years when a new owner took over. It was originally called North Country Music, named after the Bob Dylan song, Girl from the North Country. And when he sold it to another gentleman by the name of Vern Sand, and Vern wanted to change the name to make a clean break with the old store, and he picked the titles of two of his favorite obscure records. We were in a, a really cool South Minneapolis neighborhood on the corner of a major intersection, Lindale Avenue and 26th Street. It was really a great location for, and the real estate of our big plate glass windows on those two major streets where record labels fought for that space. And we were very particular about it and wouldn't put up anything by artists that we didn't endorse. And some of those major label people would just be furious. I they would just be, how <laughs> you can't do that. How dare you? You'll never get a Columbia Records promo again. And be like, look, you know, really this is just the way we operate here. I'm really sorry, sir. But <laughs> if we don't get any Columbia promos again, that's just the way it goes, kind of thing. You damn
1: kids don't understand how this business works.
0: It was really the transition there was happening when all the record stores I grew up shopping in were run by adults and business people. And that was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. This is art. There needs to be curation done. And so it was when the young people were taking over the record business in a lot of ways and not being told what to do by the elders, you know? So. The man. Not yeah, that. the man,
1: right? <laughs> I always like the origin stories. Everyone who was hired, whether it was the your first job or at the record store or through the label, uh, first it was they were a customer first, and then they got right. hired. All your yep. you hired only customers. We did. Yeah,
0: I love it. And then there were and there were customers that were. I mean, we had dozens and dozens of customers that were dying to get a job there. You know, you sometimes think about things that happened in the past and you go, I didn't know at the time, you know, how important this was going to be to my life. At that time, I knew it was my dream come true just to be working in that record store. And it had been my, it was the best record store in town and had been for two years, even when it was North Country. and. I don't know why, but it never occurred to me that I should be applying for a job there. I was busy doing other things, and I thought I was going to go into radio and all that stuff. So when Vern Sandin offered me the job, I was really just... I mean, I thought really when he approached me in the store, as I mentioned in the book, he was a very kind of gruff individual. And I thought he was just going to kick me out. Uh, I think a lot of people at that time, I was a very uh, excitable young boy. And I think often people thought I was gay. And I remember thinking Vern was going to say, get out of my store, you little, Mm -hmm. you know, F word. That's truly what I thought when I saw him approaching. And instead it was, do you want a job? And I was like, ah, holy shit, yes, I do, you know? (laughs) And that store was, I think it's remembered for good reason. I mean, it was just, it was where the people who just lived and breathed music got together. And there were certainly lots of more casual music fans that shopped there and people of all different stripes, but it was just an incredible clubhouse for music fanatics. And I treasure it 10 years there. It was just, it was my college really.
1: We are talking to our favorite music fan, producer, DJ, record executive, and tastemaker. His name is Peter Jesperson. We are going to take a break right now.
2: And we're back on the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our guest, Peter Jesperson. Okay, you told another story from around around the same time and you distributed NME for that yeah. little while. I didn't have anything like it, but I related to it because I thought when you are so passionate about music, you just assume everybody feels the same way as you, right? Right. You feel like, how could you not? Yeah. And so was it a complete surprise that you couldn't really get not you it wasn't your responsibility you were just
0: distributing it get enemy off the ground here It was absolutely shocking to me but you know it's it's funny um I think a, there's a, a a number of You know, answers to that question, because I think there's a lot of reverence for magazines like, you know, Hit Parader or Rock Scene or Cream. There was a playful element to it, and kind of a lot of, you know, Cream especially had the humorous aspect. And I liked the more serious writing that I found first in Crawdaddy. And Paul Williams writing in in the Procol Harum album, it's something he says, this album Shine On Brightly by Procol Harum. It was a record I had a need for in my life or there was some really grandiose sort of statement like that. And I felt like the British journalism, that's the way people wrote about it. It was like, you know, and you think about at that time when I was distributing the anime, there was four rock music weeklies coming out in London. I mean, that had to be the coolest, you know, city for rock and roll at the time. I mean, it was just, it was so exciting. And the way they wrote about it it was uh just deeply reverent and of course it was uh, included all kinds of fun and humor but it wasn't the same as the you know kind of well you can listen to music or you can go to the movies or you can do this or that it was like no music is everything this is for people who feel music is everything and that's how I related to it and I really and I'd been reading Melody Maker at that time it was only coming over by boat so they'd be like five weeks old by the time you read it and the covers would be tattered the newspaper and all that stuff we had one big magazine you know store downtown called Schinders where they sold newspapers from all over the world they had a little file box in the back and I had a card there with my name on it and they'd save me a copy of the Melody Maker when they got them in so so I go down there every week and get it. Of course, Melody Maker's one of the greatest music magazines ever. But at that time, they had a big folk section. They were a little stodgier. They were a little slower to come into the 70s and and embrace the you know the glam rock that was coming in and all that stuff and when i saw the nme the first issue of the nme i saw actually oddly enough had the beach boys on the cover but it was still a fascinating read and all of those writers nick kent for god's sakes and paul morley and some of those guys charles shar murray they were just fantastic writers just reading their excitement about records that i hadn't heard yet fed my excitement You know, uh, I I remember reading about this new band. I I mean, I can still picture this uh, article about this new band called Roxy Music. And they said that they had a guy in the band that went simply by the name Eno and that his current project was recording Earthworms. And I was like, I got to hear these guys. Mm -hmm. And I mailed away for their I did a lot of importing, you know, mail order from England. And I got the single Virginia Plane before the album was even out and was like, you'd never heard anything like that in your life. They were so absolutely original that was all inspired by the enemy it was uh, so when i got the chance to distribute it i was like i was over the moon to distribute the first issue with excerpts a little flexi disc on the front with excerpts from the upcoming rolling stones album exile on main street Holy cow, I was 18 years old. I was like freaking out. That was a great time. It was so much fun to get those papers and to watch David Bowie hit the cover for the first time. I was a massive Bowie fan and had fallen hard for him on the Hunky Dory record. So to watch that whole thing happen and just explode was an amazing event in my life. I had to travel to see him cause he didn't come to Minneapolis. So I took a Greyhound bus to Chicago and Detroit to see those Ziggy Stardust shows when he first came to America and it was life-changing.
1: So you used all this kind of insider info when you became a DJ at the at this music club, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what was your process like before a show? You probably knew about the bands, like the you know was it two or three bands, and then was the music tied to that, or how, how what was your process?
0: No, the process was really. I mean, you know, I'd always thought DJing was was going to be my career. You know, as a, as a little kid, and then I, I did have an experience in radio where I was told what to play by people that didn't know, not to sound snotty about it, but didn't know a fraction as much about music as I did. So it was really kind of like, it was a weird thing. I had to follow gold record and top 40 formats and things like that when I got the opportunity to play records at the Longhorn it was really just a a matter of trying to play the best music I could play every night and try to you know keep it fresh and not be too repetitive and there was a punk rock club and there were a lot of people that attended that thought I should just be playing punk rock music all the time and I just said that's not what I'm gonna do and I like the punk rock but I like lots of other stuff too and hopefully you know maybe you'll find some things that I play that you like or whatever so it really was I carried an LP box and a stack of 45s that I teetered on top of it. I didn't have a car at the time, so I had to take the bus back and forth carrying all these records. But I usually have about, you know, 30 to 40 LPs and 50 singles in a box. And, you know, so I could kind of be spontaneous and pick things. Sometimes if we're approaching a, a show with the Only Ones, you know, prior to it, I'd play a whole lot of Only Ones records. You know, there was a lot of plugging upcoming shows, of course. But yeah, it was really just to play a variety of the best music I could play and to try to push people's boundaries. I was in a couple of very threatening situations from some hard-ass punk guys I actually in a car once. They were trying to tip over my car because they didn't like me playing Bob Dylan records or whatever. I just thought it was my duty. We played Dean Martin. We'd play Donna Summer. We'd play the Sex Pistols. We'd play the Beatles. It just had to be a great record if, in in my mind anyway, you know?
1: sounds kind of like a replacement set like, uh, well there's
0: that too you know that was one of the things about the replacements I think they liked all kinds of stuff too you know uh, Paul loved the you know the top 40 radio one of my favorite things about traveling with those guys was everybody else would go to sleep at night we did a lot of late night driving especially because we had a beat up old van that didn't have very good air conditioning and if we'd be in the south we'd do a lot of travel at night I treasured those times of me driving in Westerberg and the riding shotgun just being the button pusher he was always <laughs> looking for the song always trying to find something you know he wanted to be on the radio and we were trying to figure out how we could do that.
1: So he truly wanted to be a star. Did he want to be a star? A rock star? Well,
0: I think he wanted to be recognized for his music. I don't think being a star was really, I mean, maybe later he kind of wanted to be a star, but not when I was working with him in the early days. I think he was just, he wanted his music to be recognized. You know, that was an interesting process because I think when I met him in the story is when he first gave me the demo cassette, I was getting tapes for two different reasons. Uh, I was getting tapes for Twin Tone as possible, you know, submission for a record deal. But I was also DJing at the Longhorn and I had some sway in the book there so a lot of people were giving me a tapes to get gigs opening for somebody at the Longhorn and when Paul gave me the tape and I listened to it and I loved it I just without thinking called him back and said were you thinking of a, a seven inch or were you thinking about a full LP and there really was this pregnant pause and all of a sudden he just said quote unquote you mean you think this shit is worth recording I mean he he was giving it to me to get a gig at the Longhorn so I don't think he knew yet that there was really something there. And maybe I saw something that he didn't, I think he thought he had something, but he wasn't sure. And and I think I reinforced that for him. So we were a good team in that respect, I think.
1: And where is that cassette today?
0: It's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland on loan. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to keep it. I said, no, I'll have that back one day, but you can have it for now.
2: Over the whole course of your whole, you know, friendship and working together, he sent you a lot of stuff that he hadn't shared with the band and just, Seemed like he was always feeding you music.
0: Yeah. You know, because we spent so much time together, we really, I mean, there were, you know, many nights, hours and hours and hours where it would just be him and me listening to records and we smoked the same brand of cigarettes and we both liked to drink whiskey and we would just listen to stuff all the time. And and so he knew, you know, there was a lot that I liked all different kinds of stuff. And I think when he started writing the solo material, he felt it wasn't something he wanted to bring to the band and it was really kind of a secret thing that he did so it remains one of the greatest honors of my life that he shared those things with me and it it really blew me away to the point where at one point uh, with a, a particular song he gave me about maybe Eight, ten months into him giving me these secret tapes, uh, he gave me a song called You're Getting Married. And I don't know if you know that one. We put it on as a bonus track on a reissue of Stink back in um, 2008, a CD reissue. I guess it's on the Sorry Ma box that we did in 2021, too, for Rhino. That song, when I heard it, it genuinely frightened me. And I really did think this might be too large a talent for me to work with. This might require somebody that has better, I don't know, managerial qualities than I have. It really was shocking to me.
3: You're like a guitar in the hand of a man that just can't play. You're like in me counting off the days. Like a student on vacation Just waiting for school to resume Like a flower in the dark Never gonna bloom
0: solo recordings of his to me were breathtaking and it showed that other side and that's why when we started making the first album and I thought there should be a single that led the charge and I always thought first thing a band ought to do is put out a single with a cool picture sleeve and a non-LP flip side and so I said okay we got one song from the album we'll use I'm in trouble B-side I think Paul you should really use one of those solo songs that would show to people you aren't a one trick pony and he totally said, no way, man, that ain't the replacements. And I seriously thought that was an argument I was not gonna win, but I just kept at it. I didn't overdo it, but I just, I let him know at every appropriate opportunity that I thought that was the right move. And I think it was, it just showed him B-side if only you were lonely. Before it was even really readily available, it'd only been on the seven inch and pre-internet, once the seven inch wasn't around, it just passed around from hand to hand on cassette and stuff we'd go do shows in places where, you know, people would be singing along with every word of that song, and there was a You Couldn't Buy That record. You know, it was clearly a, a song that had an impact on people.
3: When I walked out of work and I was tired as hell Another day come and gone, oh well Somewhere there's a drink with my name on it Will I order a as I bust through them doors Spilled half on my jeans The other half on the floor When I saw you standing by That video game Well, I ain't very good But I get practiced by myself Forgot my one line So I just said what I felt
1: you think it was Bob and Paul that were like, Bob was like, this is going to be the replacement sound. And so Paul was going in one direction and Bob was like, no, we have to stay the course. Or what was the dynamic within the band?
0: You know, it's funny because Bob really took a shine to some of the more sophisticated stuff. I think a great example is Johnny's Gonna Die from the first album because that was really the first ballad. You know, everything had been rockers up until that point. When he, it, We all went to see Gang War, the Wayne Kramer, Johnny Thunder's band that were very short-lived. And um, it was just kind of bad, kind of awful. And we tried desperately to get out, uh, the replacements on as an opening act, and Husker du got them, and uh, they were a little further ahead, had a little more clout than the replacements did, and we were like, damn, you know? Yeah. Uh, but uh, it was just as well, we went to the shows, and, and Thunders was such a mess. You know, I remember calling Paul the day after the show, and I said, geez, that was kind of a sad show, wasn't it? And he said, yeah, and I said, so what have you been doing? He said, well, I got a new song. I said, what's it called? And he said, Johnny's gonna die. And I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> and then when I heard it, I was amazed at what Bob put into that song.
3: Johnny always takes more than he needs. Knows a couple chords, knows a couple beats. Johnny always needs more than he takes. Forgets a couple chords, forgets a couple breaks. And everybody tells me that Johnny is hot. Johnny needs something, but he ain't got. And Johnny's gonna die. Johnny is gonna die. Is gonna
1: die.
0: Because as you say it, Bob really was the guy who wanted to play, you know, the Rockers, and, and that's kind of where his style came from. He loved Johnny Winter, he loved Steve Howe. So the fact that Bob played so well on Johnny's gonna die. I thought that was really cool, but I just think Bob kind of was maybe on guard against too much of that. We don't want people to think we're, you know, pussies, you know? And so we got to remain rock and rollers. But, you know, Paul would introduce those songs, you know, they came in a little at a time. You know, Johnny's gonna die was first and then on the second record, the song Go, although it's kind of a rock song that was still maybe a torch ballad kind of thing. And then on the third album, of course, there was Within Your Reach and treatment bound and then on the fourth album you know there was answering machine and, and unsatisfied these were not straight ahead rockers and bob liked some of those but again i think he didn't want too much of it and paul's song started to get more sophisticated and bob resisted and then that was a big part of why he left the band
2: I don't want to take you off of the replacements, but I want to ask you uh, specifically when you transitioned from the replacements to touring with REM, but I'm also curious to know if you, in hindsight, you brought it to the replacements because you wanted to make sure that this was okay with them because of your, your longstanding relationship and your perception was that nobody had any issue with it. They were fully supportive of it, but then you found out many years later that there was a possibility that they were resentful that you left them then.
0: True. Well, I mean, I knew there was trouble much sooner than than many years later. The order of events was in May of... 1983 we had just gotten back from our first major tour going to the east coast and back and REM had already been pounding the pavement you know really really touring hard although they had just put out their first album they had only had the Radio Free Europe single out so it took them a while to you know get a full well and then Chronic Town EP of course so anyway in May of 83 REM and the replacements and a couple other bands played a show together in Minneapolis at a place called Navy Island which is a little island in the Mississippi River in St paul i had gotten to know the rem guys uh when they first came to we had gone crazy over that radio free europe single and we sold so many of them that even though their first appearance in minneapolis was during a massive blizzard on thanksgiving night there were still a hundred people there i fought my way through snowbanks to get to the you know to the uh, first avenue it was at that time it was still called sam's Uncle Sam's. The band was blown away. It was the furthest away from their home of the Southeast Athens, Georgia. They couldn't believe they had that many people there. They figured the show was going to be canceled. And in fact, there were two rooms there, the main room, which had about 1100 capacity and a small room, which is 250 capacity. REM were booked in the small room and the headliner that night in the main room canceled because they couldn't get there because of the blizzard. But REM, of course, being the, the warriors that they are, they, they made it there. And The owner of First Avenue, the guy who ran the club said, well, let's just consolidate and put REM in the in the main room and just closed the 7th Street entry part. And so there was still a bunch of people there. And because by that time, we'd probably gone through hundreds, I mean, three, four hundred copies of Radio Free Europe at Orfolk. Everybody loved it. Hearing that record for the first time, it was like one of those things where you just knew they, they didn't sound like anybody else. You know, you could certainly hear influences, the Rickenbacker sound from the birds or whatever it was. But they were really, I think I said it in the book, they were a bona fide phenomenon on the strength of a single 45. I mean, it was just so completely apparent. So anyway, you get up to 1983, I was friends with the band, and Peter Buck had already been crashing on my couch a whole bunch when they'd come through town, so we were quite close. I went with them after the Navy Island show to Wisconsin and saw them play in Madison and Milwaukee just for kicks, you know? And after the Madison show, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to go home now, and I don't know when I'm going to see these guys again, and they not only were my two favorite bands in the world at the time were the replacements in R.E.M., not only were they one of my favorite bands, but they had become good friends, and I was sad that, you know, oh, shit, you know, I just saw them in Minneapolis and then twice in Wisconsin, and I was kind of down in the dumps a little bit, and Peter just came up to me and said, hey, are you doing okay? And I said, yeah, you know, just a little melancholy about, you know, leaving. And he said, well, we've been talking. Would you like to... Road manage us for a bit. And I was like, ah, are you kidding me? I am not worthy. And uh, I, I just thought this would be a great opportunity in a business sense to learn what it was like a couple of rungs up the ladder from what the replacements were doing. And I genuinely felt that way. And I said, well, I'd love to do it but I got to talk to the replacements about it. If they have any qualms, I'm going to have to say no. And he said, I totally understand. We don't want to affect your work with the replacements. And I thought that was just another cool thing about REM. So I called a meeting with the replacements and I explained it all. And I said, you know, I'm going to meet other people. They're with IRS records, they're with FBI booking, you know, we're going to be playing bigger rooms this could be an advantage for the replacements to make new contacts. And everybody said, this sounds great, Peter. Uh, we had a roadie named Tom Carlson who said, you know, I can handle things while you're away for whatever dates you have to miss. And it really seemed all positive or I would not have done it. I, if, if they had said, Oh God, I don't know. That makes me uncomfortable. I would've said, okay, done. I won't take the job. Absolutely. I would've done that. They were all just in agreement. So I told REM I'd take the gig and then right away, as our relationship continued to develop and we were booking a summer tour, you know, Peter says, Hey, would you guys like to do some dates with us in the summer? And I was like, Hell yeah. So I put their agent and our agent together and we got like 15 dates opening for REM. I mean, it was like nobody of a stature of REM were offering the replacements, to those kind of shows. It was really a great opportunity. So benefits already began immediately. And then the day we left for the first gig on the REM replacements tour was in Indianapolis. And I wanted to make most of the drive the day before the first show. So we you know, could be fresh for the first night and all that stuff. So we're going to drive partway there and then get up the next morning and have an hour or two to drive into the to the first gig. And we pulled over in Wisconsin at one point on the drive You know, it's nighttime and, you know, we were just stopping for a drink, you know, to break up the drive a little bit. And Westerberg started getting snarky with me. And I was like, where is this coming from? I mean, I I hadn't had any snarkiness from him up to that point. And I finally said, the hell's wrong with you, Paul? And he said, don't you understand, Peter? You're not one of us anymore. And I was like, what? And he said, you know, and I don't know that what he said. Did he say, yeah, you took the fucking job with R.E.M. or whatever? But anyway, it was very clear that that was had rankled him. And I was just like, what am I going to do? I was just crushed. I didn't know what to do. So I just kept my mouth shut. And I thought, hmm, I guess I'm just going to do my job and see if this blows over. And if it doesn't, I'll deal with the consequences. It ended up kind of balancing out. And at a certain point, you know, Paul seemed to put his feelings aside. After those dates with R.E.M., we started making the album that became Let It Be. And he and I were really involved together on that and and all of the songs that were coming in. And, you know, I think he needed the support that I had given him in the past and maybe put the R.E.M anger aside. Holly, what you were saying, as far as many years later, it wasn't until I read Bob Mayer's book, Trouble Boys, where Westerberg actually said, yeah, us not allowing Peter in the studio for the recording of Tim was payback for him taking the gig with R.E.M. And I thought, that was summer of 1985. The REM thing was summer of 1983. That's a long time to hold a grudge and to pay somebody back. That really seems like some, you know, kind of messed up logic to me.
1: A little passive aggressive behavior. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And by that time I'd left REM. I mean, you know, the REM gig ended up being shorter than I even anticipated. I knew it was a temporary thing while they were looking for a pro road manager. But I, uh, you know, anyway, I had already quit you know, working with R.E.M. and was full time with the replacements again.
1: All right. So I would imagine, I mean, looking back, you'd see like R.E.M. and replacements together. That must have been like a magical show. Like every show was like the greatest ever. Was it as romantic <laughs> as I would imagine it would be? No, no, okay.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no it wasn't. Because, uh, you know, very quickly, the replacements inability to deliver the goods every night became an issue. And, you It also, Westerberg got very resentful of the fact that everybody just loved REM, and they didn't always love the replacements. But the replacements were often too loud, they were often too drunk, and they were not putting on a great show every night. So there were a lot of people that paid their hard-earned money to come see both bands and they left going, you know what, R.E.M. were great, but those replacements guys, God, they seem like a bunch of fuck-ups. I like their records, but God, that live show I saw, they were falling down drunk. And that became a pattern. And rather than learn from their mistakes, it kind of pissed Westerberg off and made him go the other way rather than saying, hey, you know, the R.E.M. are uh, shaking hands and kissing babies. Maybe I ought to do a little bit more of that. But I I have to say to some degree, to Westerberg's credit, he was not able to fake it. That just wasn't in his DNA. And to me, there's something to be admired about that as well. But it was difficult to navigate, difficult to manage, you know, for me.
1: He wasn't ready for the talent show, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, but then uh, Sire comes a-knocking. And, you know, this opportunity... What was the discussion in in the band?
0: We'd had some major labels approach before Sire, so we'd been through that experience, and it was pretty interesting. The first uh, meeting we had with an outside label was with Bob Biggs from Slash Records. We met him here in in L.A. at um, Barney's Beanery. We had a meeting, and he was interested, and that didn't really come to fruition. And then uh, I remember particularly we had a good fan base in Ann Arbor, Michigan, of all places, early on, and so played there a lot. And I remember two major label people coming in to the Ann Arbor show, and they met on the plane when they had to change planes in Chicago or whatever. It was uh, Joanna Dean, who was at, I can't even think of what label she was at, and Steve Rybalski, who was at Columbia. Anyway, two people from major labels run into each other changing planes in Chicago, (laughs) and they're both getting on the plane to Ann Arbor, and suddenly they're going... Where are you going? Where are you going? And it's like they realized they were both going to see The Replacements. So anyway, that was kind of a funny deal to be, you know, who do I talk to? Do I talk to Joanna? Do I talk to Steve? You know, whatever. Then when uh, we were uh, in New York in in December of 84, we had a show at Irving Plaza. And that was really the first big show The Replacements did in New York. And it was after Let It Be had come out in October. And, you know, they had made the Paz and Jop poll and placed very highly in in that, the Village Voice thing, that was such a prestigious thing to get. And also, we'd also, I had a, a writer from the Village Voice had come out and ridden with us for a few days and was writing a story. And we didn't realize it until we got to New York on that trip that they'd put the band on the cover of The Voice. So, you know, every newsstand you walk by in New York, there are their ugly mugs staring <laughs> out at you, you know. So that was like a wow and a half. But anyway, this Irving Plaza show was jammed and people were really revved up. And we'd done a warm up show at CBGB's a couple of days before under a fake name.
1: What was the name, by the way?
0: Gary and the Boners.
1: Oh, 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 okay. (laughs) Yeah,
0: And and, and it was actually the first time we ever played with Alex Chilton, and he was just making his so-called comeback, and he was using our booking agent, Frank Riley. And I remember Frank calling me and saying, well, since you guys are going to use a fake name for CB, we had to use a fake name at CB's because Irving Plaza had the no-compete thing. Hilly Crystal at Seabees was really, really disliked the replacements. But for some reason, he and I got along like a house on fire. We just, he just liked me and I liked him from the moment I met him. And so I think that he kind of cut me some slack and said, okay, cause we booked the CB's gig first. And then I said, can this be unannounced please? Cause we got this Irving Plaza show. And I thought he was going to say, fuck, no, you got to pick one or the other or whatever. And uh, of course we would have had to take Irving Plaza at that point, but no, he said, okay, okay. You can do it under a, uh, under a pseudonym. And so when Frank Riley, the agent calls me and says, since you guys are playing under a pseudonym, Alex is going to too. And I was like, but he's trying to make a comeback. Why would he play under whatever? Anyway, typical weird Alex thinking. <laughs> so Alex played under the name, the deteriorating situations. which I thought was a fantastic idea in spite of the fact that I thought it was silly to not play under his own name. So some of the shows when they had too much to drink were fun and funny. This was neither. I mean, it was just terrible from start to finish. They were so fucked up. And part of it was because I think they were so excited about Alex playing that they watched the Alex set and were just downing all kinds of alcohol. And by the time they got on stage, they were legless. Fast forward to six, seven days or whatever to Irving Plaza, the place is packed. It's like December, uh, right before Christmas, everybody's in a party mood, and the replacements walked on stage, and they just put on one of the best shows I'd ever seen them do. They just absolutely redeemed themselves from the Seabees debacle, and you could just feel it in the room. People were just going crazy, and it was just one song after another, after another. It was so fantastic, and I was just losing my mind. It was so great, and I remember Walking around the back of the, the room, just kind of getting a vibe for the whole place, and seeing our lawyer, George Regis, talking to this kind of pudgy older guy who was gesticulating wildly talking to George. And I was kind of going, what's going on over there? Is he given George a piece of his mind about some business? George was kind of a fancy music lawyer in, in New York. I didn't think it had anything to do with us. And then the man walked away and George walked over to me and he said, that was Seymour Stein from Sire Records. And he said, he's going to have you guys signed before you even get home from this tour. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God. And then Seymour came backstage afterwards and he'd had all these pieces of paper in his pocket. He was quite drunk at the time, actually going from different places, Christmas parties, and he had scribbled all kinds of songs that he, because the replacements did a fair share of covers in their set, he scribbled down all these ideas for songs that he thought they should do. So he's pulling these hunks of paper out of his pocket going, oh yeah, you should do this song you should do that song. And it was, and we were just kind of like, holy shits, it was the guy who signed the Ramones and Talking Heads and the Dead Boys and Richard Hell and the Voidoids. We were like, how did this happen? So it really just seemed like, um, you know, a perfect match. And in some ways it was, and it could have been, but, you know, things went wonky again because the replacements had a hard time playing the game. You know, we'd done some demos with uh, Alex Chilton before the Sire deal was done we brought Alex to Minneapolis and he oversaw some sessions and then, you know, we ended up trying out Tommy Erdely from the Ramones and, and he, you know, produced as you know. So, and the record turned out a little funny, you know, it wasn't the greatest sound that we were expecting, but Sire was, um, a lot of fun and uh very exciting, but it really didn't change the way they behaved or change the course of their, you know, popularity yeah. that much.
1: Do you like the new box set? The Let It Bleed? I, do. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So you mentioned the, the sound, do you like the improvement?
0: I think it's a correction. I think it really, it's the way the record should have sounded in the first place.
1: Were you part of the recording process during Tim?
0: I was, you know, initially, I mean, literally the night before we were going in to start the record, we had a meeting at my apartment with Tommy Erdely and all of a sudden Westerberg said, oh, by the way, we don't want you in the studio while we're making this record. And it was like, you know, again, it was just a knife in the heart kind of thing. And uh, I didn't understand. I couldn't comprehend it. I just didn't, you know, whatever. So I was not around for the first, it was six weeks of studio time, and I was not around at all for the first maybe half, uh, except that I would bring per diems, and if they needed guitar strings or drumsticks or whatever it was, I was doing that sort of stuff, but I was not in the studio. And then as the band, after they'd finished the tracking, and it was just Paul, Paul, and the engineer and Tommy Erdely in the studio, somehow Paul kind of invited me back. And I don't really remember how that happened. I might've been kind of pushy about it or he might've invited me or a combination of the two. I don't really remember, but I remember once again, our relationship was, you know, we we went through our ups and downs, but we always circled back to being friends. And I think one of the key moments was that I had been talking to the a r guy from Warner's, Michael Hill, Uh, You know, Seymour was sire and and had signed the band, but Michael Hill worked for Warner uh, Records in general, and Seymour tapped him to do kind of the day-to-day A&R for the replacements. He was a big fan and knew them better than Seymour did, and so he was the right guy for the job. And I've been talking to Michael, and he uh, said to me, hey, has Paul done the solo song yet? And I said, well, there isn't a solo song for this record that I know of anyway. And he said, oh no, Paul told me he's got one. And that was kind of like weird because usually I'd be the first person Paul would talk to about these solo songs. And so I kind of went into the studio where Paul was at one point was kind of going, so you're holding out on me, I hear. Michael says you got a solo song and Paul got physically nervous right away. He got really like uncomfortable. There was no question about it. And I was like, wow, what's happening here? And he kind of like tried to sort of push it off, deny it or whatever for a minute. And then all of a sudden he said, God damn it. Yep, I do have one and let's do it. And I got an acoustic guitar here. We immediately said, OK, I want to cover up the window to the control room. Come here. And he and I pulled these big choir baffles that they had in the studio for other studio did recorded you know, orchestras and choirs and stuff. They had these big, huge choir baffles. And we moved them. They're on wheels. We moved them to block the window. And then I pulled one chair to the middle of the room. And Paul sat down. And Steve Felstead, the engineer, brought out a microphone for the guitar and a microphone for Paul's voice. And then he went back into the control room. And I was like, "Okay, Paul, are you ready? Everything, you need anything else? You need a bottle of water? You need a beer whatever? He said, no, I'm good. And as I walked out, he said, turn the lights down. I want it almost pitch black. So as I went out, I took the fader on the light switch and brought it way, way down. I could barely see him in the middle of the big studio room. And then we went into the control room and hit record. And he did Here Comes a Regular.
3: Here comes a regular.
0: grown men in the control room with tears going down our cheeks i mean it was like you know one of the most powerful experiences i ever had it was just absolutely breathtaking and he did a second pass tried a second pass at the vocal i think we ended up using the second one originally first one came out on one of the reissues of course but yeah that was a great moment and i think that was another thing that you know put the glue back in between paul and i
2: you don't have an unkind word to say about anybody, even situations that were kind of shitty. Your stories always are positive, just an observation.
0: I I appreciate that and I don't, I I didn't go into the writing of the book to do any finger pointing. I just didn't, I just find that unpleasant and and unnecessary. I mean, it was, you know, try to keep it, I mean, accentuate the positive. I've said to a couple of people, I I could have called it mostly euphoric recall. Early on, I thought I got to find a way to make a living doing something with music and the fact that, you know, and it's been many ups and downs and many times where I was making very little money I don't really care about money, and it's never been a goal of mine to make a lot of money. I would like to be rich as much as the next guy, but uh, to me, I just feel lucky that I've gotten to do this. You know, I had a little job in a restaurant before I started working in music, and then during my my alcoholic sabbatical from the music business, I had a straight job for a couple years. You know, it was kind of surprising to me that you know I had to roll with it, and I made the best of it. But then I got done with the alcohol part of my life and dove back in, and you know, it's just all I've ever done. And so I guess I'm just grateful. I think Bob Dylan said, what did he say? I got nothing but affection for all those who've sailed with me. I thought that was one of his, that's the way I look at it.
1: How can we find this book? Please tell us the name and where's it located?
0: Uh, Well, the book is called Euphoric Recall, and it's available from the Minnesota Historical Society Press, available through their website. Um, You know, we like to encourage people to buy their books at bookstores and good book sellers online rather than your Amazons. But, I mean, I buy from Amazon an awful lot, I have to admit, and don't have too many complaints about that, except that it puts some of the smaller people out of business or makes it harder for them. So it's available on all those platforms. It's the perfect Christmas gift. That was all. It's all behind the strategy of our marketing plan. <laughs>
1: yeah. Nice. Perfect.
2: Thank you, Peter.
0: Take care, Holly.
1: Thank you. I I will, you too. too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, Holly, I would like to apologize because I feel like I ambushed this interview with replacements talk and then just a little bit more replacements talk. And then I needed to talk about Paul Westerberg. Couldn't get enough. So my apologies for, for just trying to glean as much knowledge about the, that particular era as possible
2: you do not need to apologize i'm always thrilled to talk about the replacements and i loved hearing the stories and i'm glad you asked him such detailed questions so thank you well then you're welcome (laughs) i feel like we didn't even hit. his book was was packed with music industry you know record label stuff and all the musicians that he's worked with over the course of his career and the clubs in minneapolis I think we should probably have him back because we hardly scratched the surface.
1: Yeah, it's true. I did love that he got jobs because he was a customer, he was a fan, and people recognized that and like, we need this guy to work for our record store, we need this guy to do the, the DJing, we need this guy to be the curator, we need, you know, because he's here all the time. Clearly, he was a music fan and good things happen to good people and so uh, I think that's what happened with Peter.
2: They recognize his passion for the music. And why wouldn't you want someone like that on your on your staff?
1: There you go. That's why we're together, right?
2: And you're as passionate about music as I am. So that's why I wanted you on, on my staff.
1: Nice. Love it. <laughs> Where can they hear more of uh, our exciting banter?
2: If this has thrilled you and you would like to hear more... Visit our YouTube channel at What Difference Does It Make Podcast and our social media at WDDIM Podcast and you'll hear plenty of us, plenty of our guests.
1: Yes, that sounds great. There will be a lot of extra stuff on YouTube because we can't just fit it all in one podcast. There's more. So please subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, WDDIMpodcast.com. And you can give us your email. That's all we ask. And we send you once a month. We send you a newsletter of what we've been up to for the past month. It's fun. It's not a lot of thought is required. You can scan through it and it's great. And, you know, like, oh, yeah, you missed the talk with Peter Jesperson. Well, now you know. Now you can see what he looks like. Pictures and
2: everything. Our newsletter is chock full of pictures and funny
1: anecdotes. Pictures, anecdotes, music, videos. It's fun. Subscribe. WDDIMpodcast.com. We have new episodes every Friday, so subscribe on your favorite podcast platform.
2: Thank you to Pantheon Podcasts.
1: Thank you to Peter (laughs) Jesperson. I reached out to him through LinkedIn. Crazy. He answered. And a special thank you to Craig Rosen, who vouched for us and said that, okay, you, you should talk to Dave and Holly. They're cool. They'll do a good job. So he agreed based on Craig Rosen's recommendation. So thank you, Craig. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Craig.
1: All right. Well, let's wrap up this episode. That's This is the End. We'll see you next Friday. Until then, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out.
3: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football